before I begin the sermon, I'm feeling the need to pray one more time, so please join me. God in heaven, I pray for this moment. I pray for the next 20 or so minutes. God, I pray that you would protect my mind, protect our hearts, be our good shepherd and keep the enemy at bay. And Lord, I pray the same prayer for every household who's watching at home. Will you fill those spaces, those living rooms, those kitchens, those bedrooms, wherever all those people are, will your Holy Spirit fill those rooms? May your fortress-like protection that we enjoy so much in this sanctuary, may that be extended to all those homes at home. So come, Holy Spirit, bring power, bring truth, bring anointing. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Those of you who are prayer warriors, please keep praying this whole sermon. I'm just really feeling the need for that today. In the summer after my eighth grade year, I took a special trip with some of my classmates. We went on a hiking trip, like a backpacking trip, in a place called Isle Royal. I wouldn't expect anyone here to know what Isle Royal is. Somebody? Anybody? Oh, wow, look at that. I know Bob Dean does. It's a 50-mile-long island in Lake Superior up near the Canadian border. And Isle Royal is a national park. And there's nothing on Isle Royal but nature. There's no motored vehicles. There's no electricity. There's no fast food restaurants. It's just trails and rivers and rocks and streams and waterfalls and nature. And my eighth grade classmates and I, we got all ready. We got our big backpacks stuffed full of canned food and camping stoves. And on one day, my buddy put a couple boulders in the other guy's backpack, but that's another story. And we set out with our hiking boots to go hike the 50 miles across Isle Royal in five days. So that's 10 miles a day, nothing but eighth graders and one brave dad who came with us to lead the way. It was my first experience of wilderness. There we were out there in the elements. I remember the first day, 10-mile hike, it rained all day. It was miserable. Then the second day that we were hiking, perhaps because of all the rain the first day, we had a plague of biblical proportion of mosquitoes. It was terrible. I remember my hiking boots were about one size too big, probably because my mom wanted to get another year of use out of them. But it made for miserable hiking and blisters. I was so exposed for the wuss that I was. (laughs) I remember on the third or fourth day, I was hiking along, carrying all that weight on my back in the size too big boots. And I was chugging along, probably whining and complaining, although I don't remember that. I'm sure the brave dad does. And I was hiking along, and I tripped on a root in the path and landed on another route and actually bruised my sternum. It was a bad day. It was my first real experience with wilderness. Wildernesses are seasons of our life that are uncomfortable and even disorienting. I remember on my hike across Isle Royal, I kept thinking about, it was really fun when we got there because we took a seaplane to fly out there and to land. I remember thinking on those long hiking days, I remember thinking, when do we get to get back on the seaplane? That was fun. Well, God's people experience a wilderness, a literal wilderness and a spiritual one in today's reading. God has brought them out of the hand of Egypt, 
across through the Red Sea, and here they are now out in a wilderness of their own, and it is uncomfortable and disorienting. That's how wildernesses work, and we can learn a lot about our wildernesses that God puts us in sometimes by looking at the wilderness that God's people are in here in Exodus. So let's look at it together again. We're just going to read a few of the verses and focus on them, see what we can learn about our own wildernesses. I want to begin in verse 2 to see how God's people handled the wilderness that they they were in. Verse 2 says this, The whole congregation of the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. And the people of Israel said to them, Would that we had died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt when we sat by the meat pots and ate bread to the full. For you have brought us out into this wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. So how are they doing out there in the wilderness? A couple things about this. It says in the very first verse, this is two months and 15 days after they walked out of Egypt. And if you do the math on this, it means it's exactly one month after they walked across the Red Sea. The Red Sea where the glory of God was revealed. Can you imagine having that experience walking through the Red Sea and then getting on the other side of the sea and turning back and seeing your former slave owners, these oppressors, swallowed up by the water and then singing gloriously praises to God? Can you imagine that? It's only one month ago. And here they are saying to Moses and Aaron, we wish none of this happened and we wish we had stayed in Egypt as slaves and died there. They had just seen the glory of God and only one month later they're grumbling and wishing they were dead. Now when I first look at that, I think how silly of them. But the more I think about this, the more compassion I begin having on these people. It's been two and a half months since they left Egypt, one month since they saw the crossing of the Red Sea. It doesn't seem like that much time, but the more I think about it, something like a million people strong, men, women, children, cattle, all of their belongings. If you're out, Your supplies are probably running out by this point. There may be people close to death starving. One month suddenly seems like a really long time. If you have not enough food and not enough water, I barely lasted five days on my hike in Isle Royal. This is a full, I begin having compassion on them because the wilderness that they were in was very real. Yes, they saw the glory of God on display when they came out from the hand of Pharaoh, when they crossed the Red Sea, but a full month has gone by. They are really hungry and getting a little desperate. And I want to just have compassion on them and compassion on all of us in our stories because the wildernesses that we find ourselves in sometimes are real and they hurt and they can be uncomfortable and disorienting. I was beginning some research on this wildernesses series, which by the way is going to be the next six weeks of our teaching. That's a long sermon series, but it's called Wildernesses, so it's going to be longer than we like, as wildernesses normally are. (laughs) I was working on this, doing a little bit of research, and I was texting with an old friend of mine who lives in another town. And he didn't know I was working on research about wildernesses, and he was telling me his story. 
And he was telling me how he lost his job this year and he's losing his marriage. He's not even living with his family right now. And from some lonely hotel room, he was texting me and he said, out of the blue, he said, this is my wilderness. He didn't even know I was working on this. I thought that was pretty profound. Here's a man who's lost his job and is losing his family. And he said, this is my wilderness. And I know from talking with so many of you so often that some of you are in wildernesses right now. Or you've recently been in wilderness. And if you're not in one now or haven't been in one, I'm sorry to tell you, God loves you enough to bring you out into a wilderness soon. Wildernesses are real. So what are they all about? Why would God allow us, his beloved children, to go into wildernesses? Well, it says right here in the text that it's to test us. It's to test us. Now, I'm a little bit uncomfortable with that language. I don't like to think about a God who tests me. But it's right here. Look at it with me in verse 4. God declares his intentions. It says this, Then the Lord said to Moses, Behold, I'm about to rain bread from heaven for you, and the people shall go out and gather a day's portion every day that I may test them, whether they will walk in my law or not. What is a test? A test is simply a way to reveal or expose the true character of the person. You're either going to pass the test or fail the test. So what's the test that God puts his people in here in Exodus 16? Well, it says it right here. Look closely again at verse 4. They will go out and gather a day's portion every day. That's the test. He explains it more in verses 16 through 18, but the test is basically God saying, I'm going to give you enough for today. Your job is to gather what I give you for today. Can you do that? And there's really a test under that test. It's not just, will he see if they gather the right amount? By the way, the omer that they talk about here is, is basically if you put your two hands together and scoop it all the way to the top, kind of a mounding pile in your two hands. That's about the amount he gave each man, woman, and child each day. He's saying to them, can you take a day's portion and only a day's? But the test under that test is really God saying to his people, will you trust me? Will you trust me? A day's portion every day. And if you pass the test, you will just scoop up exactly what God tells you to scoop up and you will eat that and you will say, I trust you, God. You did it for me today. I trust that you will do it for me tomorrow. But if you fail the test out there in the wilderness, you'll scoop up exactly what he gives you for the day and then you'll scoop a little bit more. Kind of like Anne said to the children for a little manna casserole the next day. That was descriptive, wasn't it? Will you trust me in the wilderness? That's really what God is asking. You know, I gave that announcement a few minutes ago about how we need to increase our giving to the general fund. And it's been an interesting journey for me to watch that. I've been looking at that going, oh no, we're behind on our giving. And my planning, scheming, controlling mind starts saying, oh, let's figure out a plan to get this up. But I hear God whispering to me and to the staff here at the church saying, will you trust me with this? Will you trust me with this? It's the very same test he was giving to his people out in the wilderness. Now, here's an important question. I want us all to pay close attention to this part of the story. 
in Exodus 16, did God's people pass or fail the test? This is important. Let's look together in verse 19 and 20. You remember the test? Will you take just what you need for the day and trust that he'll give it tomorrow? Will you trust God? Verse 19 gives us the answer. Moses said to them, let no one leave any of it over till morning, but they did not listen to Moses. Some left part of it till the morning, and it bred worms and stank, and Moses was angry with them. Did they pass the test? No. I really want you to pay attention to this because sometimes we think God's putting me to the test. It's just like all the other tests in my life. I have to show the professor that I can get the A and then I'll get the reward. But sometimes God gives us tests that he knows will fail. Why? He brings us out into the wilderness. Why? So that we are exposed for who we really are. I was exposed on Isle Royal for the coddled youngest child that I was not athletically inclined. I was in trouble in Isle Royal. He brings us out in the wilderness sometimes and he gives us tests, not so that we can pass the test and get an A from God, but to fail the test and say, I need you, God. You've showed me, you've exposed me out here in the wilderness for the vulnerabilities that I have, for the weaknesses that I have. Because not only does he bring us out in the wilderness to expose us in our weakness, he brings us out in the wilderness to reveal who he really is. That's what he does here in the wilderness. When they fail the test, when they keep some of it till morning and it turns to worms, what does God do in response? Does he say, okay, they failed the test. No more manna. Let them die out there. No. Look at verse 35. We didn't read this, but turn your Bible over if you still have it open. Look at this amazing verse. Verse 35. Everybody there? The people of Israel ate manna 40 years till they came to a habitable land. They ate the manna till they came to the border of the land of Canaan. God continued blessing them with a daily meal, a daily portion. Give us today our daily bread. God continued to do that even though they failed his test for 40 more years. I really hope you're hearing this. Because if you feel like you're in a wilderness or you've been in a wilderness and you failed out there, All you discovered was your own weaknesses. Well, that's the point, maybe. To say, Lord, I am weak. I am dependent on you. I can't do this on my own. I need thee every hour. I need thee. That's where he wants you. Because he wants to expose us for the sinners, the grumblers, the whiners, the schemers that we are so that he can reveal himself for the Savior that he is. When we fail the test, he asks us to fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. You know what Jesus did? Right after he was baptized, the Holy Spirit led him out into the wilderness for 40 days. And he was hungry out there. And the tempter, Satan, came up to him and he said, Hey, since you're the Son of God, why don't you turn one of these stones into bread? You know how good that must have looked to Jesus to eat some bread? But Jesus said no, and he quoted scripture, and he called out the lies of the enemy. In other words, Jesus passed the test that all of us fail. That's the equation. 
We, in our sin, in our selfishness, in our flesh, fail the test. We cannot measure up to God's perfect law, but Jesus comes in as our Savior, as our substitute, and He says, I will fulfill the perfect law of the Father for you. He did it out there in the desert, and He did it all the way to the cross, all the way unto death. He perfectly loved the Father and His neighbors as Himself by dying in our place. That's what happened on the cross. Jesus was passing the test that we all fail. That's the good news. That's the equation. Maybe you're in a wilderness not to show how great you are, but to show how great God is for you. He brings us out into the desert to show us his grace. He keeps supplying manna. He keeps supplying daily bread even when we don't deserve it. He keeps bringing us to this table week after week, not because we've earned it, Not because we've passed the test again this week. Good job, here's your reward. No, but because he has passed the test for us. There's another thing he shows us out there in the wilderness, not just his grace, but also his glory. I've been having fun following this word glory throughout the Exodus story as we've been following it with our children and youth. The word glory appears. When he brings them out of Egypt, he says, it's for my glory. When he brings them across the Red Sea, he says, I'm doing this so that everyone in Egypt will know the glory of Yahweh. And now out here in the wilderness, something very interesting happens. He says, I'm going to show my glory out here too. It appears twice in this chapter. This doesn't look very glorious, does it? People scrambling on the ground for daily food and sustenance. God says, behold my glory, and he shows this cloud. Two weeks ago when Gina preached, she defined God's glory like this. She said, God's glory is when the invisible character of God becomes visible. That's that's when you know you've beheld his glory. When the invisible character of God becomes visible. I can't think of a better example of that than manna from heaven. God maybe brought you out into the wilderness that you're in or that you were in or that you inevitably will enter into soon. Maybe he brings you out there to show you his grace, to show you his glory, to expose you for who you are, weak, dependent, incapable, grumbling, and to reveal who he really is, your good and perfect heavenly father. Do you see it? I went on another hike many years later. This one went a little better. I had the right size boots. And I was with Nancy. Everything goes better in my life when she's there. We went to Israel together with Dr. Brian Woodbin. And I remember we were on a hike one day in the Galilee region. And we were in the place where scholars think Jesus gave the Sermon on the Mount. And you know, Jesus, of all people, can speak to this trusting thing the best. And I had this experience out there. I wish I could take you all with me right now to go out there on the place where Jesus himself preached the Sermon on the Mount. And Dr. Woodbin kind of paraphrased the whole sermon. We were just following along with him. You were there, Laura. A couple of you were there. It was an amazing experience. I even... I was listening so closely to what Dr. Whitbin was saying as he was kind of relaying the Sermon on the Mount. Later that night, I actually started apologizing to people on the trip. I said, hey, sorry, I was hogging Dr. Whitbin. I know I was right up in his face listening to him as if he was talking just to me. And, and the people around me, they said, you weren't doing that. I was doing that. 
You were behind me, Nathan. It felt to all of us like we were just like in this zone, hearing almost as if Jesus himself by the Holy Spirit was right with us, giving us the Sermon on the Mount. And what I learned that day was the very same thing the Israelites learned out here in the wilderness. I learned that what God wants from me is my trust. He wants me to trust him with everything. The clothes on my back, the church budget, the health and future of my children, the health of my marriage. God says in all of those things, trust me more. Trust me more. I desire to give you your daily bread. Will you trust me? And guess what? When we don't, he says, I'm going to keep blessing you. I would actually like us to somehow, I'm just going to pray right now. I'm going to read some from the Sermon on the Mount, same thing that I heard Dr. Woodman say those years ago. You don't have to turn to it. I'm going to pray, Holy Spirit, will you do in this room what you did out there near the Sea of Galilee? Will you collapse space and time and allow Jesus to be present right here speaking these words to us? May every heart hear these words as if they were designed right for him or her. Amen. Hear the words of Jesus. Therefore, I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns. And yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? And which of you, by worrying, can add a single hour to your span of life? And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet, I tell you, even Solomon, in all his glory, was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Therefore, do not worry saying, what shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow. For tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. I've learned over the years to actually try to thank God when he brings me into the wilderness. Because when I'm in those places of my life that are uncomfortable and disorienting, that's when I know he has my attention. And I say, show me, God. Show us, God who we really are, but more importantly, who you really are. Amen.